This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. By the spring of 1871, the gallows had been built, the hood had been sewn, and the people of upstate New York were anxious to see Edward Ruloff with a noose around his neck. The Civil War had just ended six years earlier, but the nation was still in mourning. Historian Gerald Smith says that many people in Binghamton were angry at the war, at the South, and at the man in their jail who had murdered at least five people. At least They just are beginning to acclimate back into a peaceful coexistence with life, and Ruloff comes along and breaks it. And I think to them, it's sort of like they couldn't go and kill all the Confederates that killed their young, but they could get Ruloff. Edward's execution day was two months away, but he just seemed oblivious that he would soon die. Instead, he spent every moment in that jail cell writing his manuscript. He was determined to finish it before his death. It was the only thing that mattered at this point. The noose didn't unnerve him, but he was terrified of dying before cementing his academic legacy. And he knew he didn't have much time left. Just days earlier, a jury had convicted Edward of murdering Frederick Merrick, and his defense attorney immediately appealed. Journalist Hamilton Freeman even helped. He was becoming more attached to Edward each day. Ham was actually advocating for him now. The attorney argued that the two clerks had attacked Edward, Jarvis, and Dexter as they tried to escape. They filed one appeal after another. Each was denied. There were delays, and March passed without a hanging in Binghamton. And so Edward Ruloff wrote by sunlight and candlelight. One day, a reporter from the New York Sun newspaper in Manhattan stood near his cell. The journalist understood linguistics. Edward smiled, and the pair talked for hours about his complicated theory and how it could help anyone learn a new language. And soon, the reporter started filing sympathetic stories, hinting that Edward had been unfairly treated. He printed excerpts of Edward's manuscript alongside lengthy interviews with the killer. And eventually, public opinion seemed to sway Edward's direction, particularly in New York City. 
Readers offered an opinion on Edward in the city's newspapers. Some thought he was crazy and said executing him would be wrong. Others believed that capital punishment didn't belong in modern society. But the most interesting and controversial argument was that Edward's linguistics work was valuable, and so was he. He shouldn't be put to death because the world needed his manuscript. Craig Scott says the family was shocked and furious once again. They thought he was such a brilliant man that he probably shouldn't be put to death. It is putting the lives of two women and two children below. It puts them at a level lower, like under him. Yeah, he did these awful things, but he's so brilliant. We, sh- we shouldn't put him, shouldn't hold him accountable for it. And that's exactly what some influencers in Manhattan thought. The first prominent person to come to Edwards' defense was Republican presidential hopeful Horace Greeley. Historian Esther Crane says that he was a savvy politician, but he had an even more important position in Manhattan. He was the owner of the one of the city's biggest newspapers, so he had a big platform. Greeley owned the New York Tribune, a powerful media company that influenced culture and politics throughout the city. And Greeley's editorial on April 25th seemed to almost praise Edward Ruloff. He wrote, In the prison at Binghamton, there is a man awaiting death who is too curious an intellectual problem to be wasted on the gallows. He is one of the most industrious and devoted scholars our busy generation has given birth to. And then the politician made an incredible statement. He murdered the shopkeeper in the interest of philology. Philology was a subfield of linguistics. Philologists studied the history and adaptations of language, but it really isn't in use now. So Greeley was saying that Frederick Merrick's murder was justified because of Edward's academic research in philology. And then the debate became even stranger when author Mark Twain submitted a satirical piece to the Tribune requesting that someone else take Edward's place on the gallows. He was too intelligent to kill. Twain wrote, What miracles this murderer might have wrought, and what luster he might have shed upon his country if he had not put a forfeit upon his life so foolishly. But what if the law could be satisfied and the gifted criminal still be saved? At the end of the piece, Twain suggested that he himself would take Edward's place. While the opinion piece was clearly tongue-in-cheek, Twain privately felt that Edward's sentence should be commuted to life in prison. The author believed that the killer could still contribute to society. More people wrote in, including high-ranking religious leaders. One said, I still think that the lack of evidence of intent to kill ought to weigh strongly on his behalf. Another reader asked, Have we so many learned men among us that we will see this one hung up like a ham? A linguistics expert in Washington, D.C. praised Edward for his theory on the origin of languages and said, it would be a pity to hang Ruloff. Clearly, the press was helping Edward's case. Some very important people wanted a convicted killer to live, even for just a few months longer, because of his discovery of a way to effectively teach languages. Historian H.W. Brands says that a stay of execution might have actually been appropriate if Edward's discovery really was remarkable. That doesn't strike me as unreasonable, although if I were a member of the family, I might feel that, that his work was being placed above 
the lives of my kin. But on the other hand, from the standpoint of if he is, in fact, going to hang at the, when he finishes his manuscript, then what really does six months matter? Of course, the Scuts would hear none of that. Edward should have no mercy, they insisted. Edward, for his part, was desperate for more time, so he called in his attorney. Ham Freeman and Edward's lawyer drew up a petition to delay his execution so he could finish the manuscript. And then Ham invited scholars from across the country to Binghamton Jail. The scholars would test Edward's depth of knowledge and his theory on human language. It would prove the value of Edward's work and of Edward himself once and for all. More than a dozen academics arrived over the next few days, including a professor of Greek and German from Amherst College. Linguistics professor Michael Weiss says that Richard Henry Mather was astounded by Edward's intelligence. He said, let's discuss some passages. He started with Xenophon's memorabilia, and Ruloff was able to recite large chunks of it by heart. Uh, and then he went on to Homer and Sophocles, etc. He was able not only to have memorized these things, but also to comment on their interpretation critically in a way which Mather, a professional classicist, thought was pretty, pretty impressive. Mather found that Edwards showed a depth of understanding that was remarkable. So he was hoping for validation from the authorities at the time. The scholars spent hours with Edward inside the Binghamton jail cell. They quizzed him on languages, philosophy, and history. They were in awe of his intelligence and his incredible memory. Edward smiled at each expert. The men read passages from his manuscript, that incredible theory of the origin of language. And as they left his jail cell, Edward's defense attorney handed each one the petition to save Edward Ruloff's life. All they needed to do was sign. Each expert replied with the same answer. No. They refused to sign. One remarked that Edward was incredibly intelligent, brilliant, but his system of unlocking human language was ludicrous. His theory was worthless, according to the real experts in linguistics. Michael Weiss explains exactly where he went wrong. Ruloff was working in a pre-modern mode, so he was just completely in a long, long tradition going all the way back to Plato and beyond, but he hadn't basically kept up with the 19th century. The experts were bewildered by Edward's conclusions. Most of them did believe there might have been something to his theories, that perhaps they might have had some promise if only he would be willing to collaborate with more experienced academics. Too late for that now. Edward Ruloff had spent decades on that manuscript, an idea born inside one of the country's worst prisons. He had created a crime ring just to live near New York City's great libraries. He had escaped the noose numerous times. He had murdered people who threatened to stop him. And ultimately, it was all for nothing. Edward Ruloff was an utter failure, a joke in the media. It seems not coincidental to me that the guy's name was Ruloff with an R and an L, that R and L in particular play a kind of key role in his analysis. So I think it really comes back to his kind of uh, narcissism. I mean, he was, he was nuts. Which was a shame, says Weiss, because Edward did have a brilliant mind. I think he could have actually 
had an impact. Uh, he, I think he could have been a classicist, as someone who studies Greek and Latin language and literature. He seems to have been a very talented acquirer of information, but once he got that information, he didn't know what to do with it. When the committee of experts refused to sign the petition, newspaper readers suddenly turned on Edward. They felt cheated, and they were outraged because they had been duped. They called him a fraud, a swindler. Esther Crane says that she's not surprised by that reaction because people living in the Gilded Age were quite easily fooled. Hoaxes were huge at the time. I mean, they were always saying that, like, you know, all the lions got out of Barnum's museum. Oh, my God, run for your lives. And it was all just a hoax. It would be in the newspaper, the front page. But Mark Twain and Horace Greeley weren't your average Americans. They were literati in New York, two of the country's most important people. It seems a little unlikely to me that either would have fallen for a fraud. If you think about someone like Mark Twain or Horace Greeley living at that time, they wouldn't have known what was cutting edge in linguistics, right? It it basically was very specialized knowledge and mainly in German. They simply can't tell what's genuine versus what's not genuine. And Esther Crane believes that Horace Greeley might have believed in Edward's work, but there was also likely another motive. It probably sold newspapers. I think that Greeley uh, got taken in, it sounds like. The language committee was useless to him. So Hamilton and the defense attorney begged the governor to assign a lunacy committee without Edward's permission. His attorney, George Becker, was hoping to have his client declared insane, sparing him from the gallows. Once again, a committee of experts reported to the Binghamton jail. But Edward's reaction to this group was quite different from the previous committee. He ignored them. He later berated his attorney for the decision He didn't want to be declared mentally ill. It would discredit his entire body of research. Edward still believed in his manuscript. No, he'd rather die than be declared insane. Edward continued to furiously write day and night. A New York Tribune editorial begged the governor to delay the execution until Edward could finish his work. But Governor Hoffman refused. Edward's execution date was set for May 18, 1871. But before he walked onto the gallows, he was determined to finish his book, to smooth out his theory, to leave a legacy for future generations that he hoped would be a little more astute. That would certainly happen. But it wasn't the legacy he had hoped for. Three days before his execution date, Edward reflected on his life, and he became extremely depressed. His book was complete, but it had been ridiculed by the same scholars he had hoped to impress throughout his career. Edward argued that the experts spent too little time with him and his theories. They were all wrong, he insisted to him. He cursed constantly as he paced in his small cell. He told dirty jokes that made even hardened jailers wince. He verbally abused his attorneys, and then something made him scoff. A request from a pair of familiar visitors. His wife's brothers, William and Ephraim Scott, wanted to see him. Actually, they demanded to see him. This seemed to be the finale of a really long journey for the Scott family. And the brothers still had questions about the fate of Edward's daughter. I'm sure they wanted to know where she was. That's why they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to know, you know, is she in Cuba Lake? 
I'm sure that would have been one of their questions, but he wouldn't talk to them, so. And I'm sure that would have given them even more closure if they at least could have had an answer. I tend to think there are multiple levels of closure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Edward Ruloff declined the Scut's request, not surprising. And he refused to tell them anything about his wife, Harriet, or Priscilla. He never again mentioned his sister-in-law, Amelia, or his niece, Emile. As far as he was concerned, they could all go to hell. Three days before the execution, Edward wrote one last letter to his distinguished pen pal. Julius Hawley Seeley was now a professor at Amherst College in Massachusetts. They had exchanged ideas for decades, ever since Edward had been in Auburn State Prison. Edward's final letter was pathetic and painful. In the whole history of the human race, no more remarkable instance of blind and stupid malignity can anywhere be shown than that which closes its eyes to the value of my discovery and denies the time necessary to place it in available form. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, I think he, he, he believes that his breakthrough is being, you know, suppressed because no one is as brilliant as Ruloff can understand, you know, what a great uh, discovery this is. Just days before his execution, Mark Twain penned a dedication to Edward in his new manuscript, Roughing It. For the late Cain, wrote Twain, not because of his noble character, but out of a mere humane commiseration for him in that it was his misfortune to live in a dark age that knew not the beneficent insanity plea. It was clear to some that Edward should not die. As his execution day grew closer, Edward became sullen. His dream of being a legitimate academic had vanished. There was nothing to live for. Meantime, the townspeople in Binghamton and visitors from Tompkins County were absolutely giddy. The press coverage, locally and internationally, was enormous. Ruloff swings tomorrow was one headline. I mean, you got an engraved invitation to the execution if you were invited. But it's almost like family fair day. Let's have a, let's have a picnic on the ground waiting for the body to be dragged out. But, you know, it's, it's almost, it's that need to drive by the car accident. Reporters chronicled Edward's every movement. Men, women, children, Everyone gathered outside the gallows that afternoon. Even an escaped prisoner joined the crowd. Journalist David Wren and historian Gerald Smith say public executions were massive events for small towns. It was such a tradition. I mean, it was not just here in New York State, but that was sort of the general thing that was done. It was pack a picnic basket and go out. And it actually didn't matter the weather. The execution went off rain or shine, and... Uh, drew huge, huge crowds. You've got the masses outside. First of all, they want to be inside. They're noisy, they're clamorous. This is not the upper echelons of society huddled around that fenced-in area. These are the working class. This is the lower to probably lower middle class. His lawyer suggested filing more appeals, but Edward was resolute. His manuscript was finished, and he hoped one day that scholars would validate his theory and prove his critics wrong. He told his attorney, no, let her rip. 
the sheriff arrived and asked Edward what should be done with his corpse. You can do what you damn please with it, was his curt response. Edward burned all of the papers in his cell except the manuscript. A Tribune reporter visited and the killer left him with foreboding last words, insisting that his theory was valid. He said, if I could have had more time. He then grabbed his neck and made choking sounds. It was a horrid joke. He still insisted that more time would have allowed him to prove that his theory really wasn't bunk. Visitors looked at him with disgust. Hamilton Freeman was the only person who Edward had confided in over the past few months. As the two men sat in Edward's jail cell, the details of his life had spilled out. He had even confessed to killing his wife Harriet in 1844. But now it was time for Hamilton to help him. A few days earlier, Edward had ordered Ham to do something. Now it was time to see how compliant the journalist really was. As Edward prepared to leave his cell for the last time, he embraced the reporter with an intimate, open-mouth kiss. Edward had told Ham to hide a cyanide pill in his mouth so he could take his own life, death on his own terms. But the journalist backed out. He refused to help him die. Hamilton was enamored with Edward Ruloff, but not totally seduced. When Edward found no pill, he angrily pushed Ham away. The final scene in their complicated relationship. This would be the last time Hamilton Freeman would see Edward Ruloff alive. The area outside the gallows was chaotic as thousands cheered his arrival. Edward ordered the sheriff to remove any clergyman who might pray for him. He had dedicated his life solely to science. Religion would have no role in his death. As he stepped onto the platform, Edward looked across the crowd. William and Ephraim Scutt stood just below him and peered up. They had been waiting for more than two decades to watch this. Why do you think that would be important? To know for sure that he was gone and he wasn't a threat to them anymore. So I'm sure it was it was for Harriet, but also it maybe was kind of for their own peace of mind and their own families knowing that he was gone. And they wanted to see it, you know, for themselves. The hangman placed the white hood over his head. Edward had his hands in his pockets, a habit he had picked up as he strolled along the banks of the river years earlier. There are many myths about Edward Ruloff's final words. Historian Gerald Smith told me a few of them. I mean, it's the whole thing about the marching up and do you want a hood? Do you have any last words? Now, the apocryphal words, which we've all ushered, you know, tell the hangman to hurry up so I can be in hell in time for lunch or dinner, depending on which meal it was. Um, which I wouldn't doubt he would have said, just from his attitude. But every reliable account says that Edward Ruloff's last words were quite simple. I cannot stand still. The sheriff gave the signal, and a large weight dropped to the ground. 
and Edward was jerked three feet into the air. He was being executed using an upright jerker, a contraption designed to deliver a quick death by swiftly snapping the prisoner's neck. But in this case, it didn't work. Edward began to gasp for breath and shrug his shoulders. The jerk forced his hand from his pocket. The crowd watched, horrified, as he shoved it back inside. His neck wasn't broken, only dislocated, so he didn't die immediately. His neck was so thick that he was essentially strangled over more than 20 minutes. It was excruciating, and it even repulsed those townspeople who had begged to see him die. Of course, they still clamored to see his corpse right afterward. After the execution, they take the body down and lay it out for estimates of five to 10,000 people to, to come by and look at the body. I think the level of retribution needed here was like closure for the Dryden people, closure for the people here. Finally, the Scott family could conclude that horrible chapter in their history. Her brothers would have felt some closure that they worked on that for, like you said, so many years. And to finally get him, and, and they went to the execution. So I, I would only assume it had to give them some sort of closure on it. Edward Ruloff's hanging was the last public execution in New York State. Some thought it was a fitting end to a life filled with brutality. Others thought it was an illustration of the inhumanity of capital punishment. But Edward wasn't quite through with academia just yet. Thirty-six hours after Edward Ruloff's execution, Binghamton pathologist Dr. George Burr unceremoniously sawed off his head. He was going to study his brain. And it was pretty difficult because the neck cords were so incredibly thick Edward's skull wouldn't crack easily. It was twice the thickness of ordinary skulls, about half an inch. The surgeon struggled for almost an hour. Dr. Barbara Finley is a psychology professor at Cornell University in Ithaca. If you're charged with getting a brain out of a very hard skull without hurting it, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> so uh, you haven't got much leverage because it's a... Uh, this nice circular structure with a thing you don't want to damage inside. Dr. Burr was methodical as he examined Edward's brain. He measured the length and depth of every fissure and fold. He searched for abnormalities like pools of blood or obvious damage. The surgeon's final report was full of data, but it was also peppered with odd statements about a warped mind. Brain imaging analysis from the 19th century. The report read... An examination of Ruloff's brain showed the animal portion of it, the cerebellum, to be unusually large in proportion to the upper portion, the cerebrum, which is supposed to cause the moral and religious sentiments. Scientists now know there is no moral section or animal section of the human brain. Burr's analysis was similar to phrenology, except instead of examining the bumps on a skull, the surgeon looked at the brain's structure— he concluded that the wiring of Edward's brain had doomed him from birth. He wasn't responsible for his crimes. But well-regarded alienists disagreed. They believed Edward was brilliant and troubled, but he was in sound physical health and entirely sane. Yes, his execution was morally just. Experts in 1871 couldn't agree. 
should his abnormal brain have saved him? If alienists had just known about psychopathy, wouldn't an asylum have been a more appropriate option to the noose? And actually, we still ask those questions. For the past 10 years, the brain scan has crept into American criminal courts through a phenomenon called the brain defense. A Duke University study found that between 2005 and 2012, Roughly 25% of death penalty trials used neurobiological data to argue for life in prison. Dr. Frederica Coppola teaches at Columbia University about the intersection between neuroscience and law. Is this an area of frustration for the families of victims? Well, I am afraid that neuroscience has created a lot of myth of the brain. People really think that the brain can justify behavior. And this is totally mistaken. It's worrisome that this kind of information is so overused in criminal trials. In one example, a PET scan of a murder suspect's brain showed abnormally low neuron activity in his frontal lobe. Scientists say that often causes an increased risk of aggressive, even violent behavior. But prosecutors argue that others suffering from that same condition haven't committed crimes. The brain defense is a dangerous precedent because the human brain is still a mystery. It's also incredibly controversial. Even the country's most well-respected neuropsychologists can't agree if the brain can predict criminal behavior. Dr. Valerie Renna researches brains and behavior at Cornell University. It doesn't necessarily add anything good. It can just mislead people if they believe it. Just mentioning the word neuroscience in one study, for example, made people believe the same evidence more without even the pictures. The pictures didn't add anything. It was just the mention of the word neuroscience because people have, you know, it's a kind of blind faith. Coppola says the use of neuroscience in courtrooms as evidence is unlikely to go away anytime soon. And that's troubling. I foresee good things and bad things about uh, neuroscience in a courtroom at the the social level. I don't know. Actually, I don't see good things. (laughs) I don't see any positive effect of using neuroscience in a courtroom. After his execution, Edward's brain was sold for $15 to one of the world's foremost brain anatomists, Bert Greenwalder at Cornell University. It became, in fact, the very first acquisition in the very first brain collection in America, one of the most important developments in medical science. Dr. Barbara Finley is the collection's curator. What is the brain collection, just in the grand scheme of things? It's more than a cabinet of curiosities. What does it represent? This is the first step in understanding cognition and experience and all that in physical terms. This is just a a world-changing difference in point of view about how we think about about brains. Um, This time in science was when these things that seemed so disembodied became embodied. And I think it's right up there with understanding evolution in terms of its significance. Dr. Wilder's brain collection had competition in America. Other anatomists wanted to dissect the brains of well-regarded men like themselves, white and elite. They wanted to use the brain to prove the superiority of civilized men. They had no interest in researching intelligence. Surely their brains would be far bigger and much heavier than those of criminals or women or minorities. 
this was the racist and sexist ideology that dominated 19th century science. And developmental neurology professor David Price says that scientific racism still exists. The danger is it feeds into people believing that there are differences between different sets of people. You know, I mean, that's all been discredited because differences between races are so minimal genetically. Anyway, now that we've sequenced the genome. But I think these ideas are still there and they still persist. Um, people are still, still believe these things. These 19th century brain collections marked the beginning of neuroscience. For the first time, neurologists could actually compare brains, their size and structure. And with Edward Ruloff's help, they came to some shocking conclusions. So we can't say for sure if any abnormality in Edward's brain caused him to kill. We do know that it made history. In 1871, Dr. Burr looked at his lab scale and wrote, weight, 59 ounces. Edward's brain was the heaviest and largest Burr had ever seen, and it was devastating for some of the nation's most respected neurologists. When Dr. Wilder declared it the second largest on record, more than 30% bigger than the average man, it discredited all of those prejudice theories. Modern scientists say Edward's brain now belongs in the top 1%, still an incredible mark. But as we now know, and as Dr. Wilder soon learned, size doesn't matter. It's no indication of intellect or of belonging to a privileged group with claims on superior intelligence. Wilder discovered that a criminal and a minister can have really similar brains. He was also the first person ever to declare that the brains of people of color, the brains of criminals, the brains of women were not inferior in size or quality to those of elite white men. Edward's brain became one of Wilder's prized specimens, like one of Charles Darwin's finches, the birds used to illustrate his theory of natural selection. And then Dr. Wilder drew even more startling conclusions. He suggested that the structure of Edward's brain was actually similar to that of a gifted white philosopher and mathematician. It was also similar to the brain of a person of mixed race. The three brains were almost identical. Wilder's critics tried to discredit his claims, but it was too late. His findings were documented in medical history books. A murderer had changed everything we knew about human brains. Edward Ruloff was Wilder's first case study, the avatar for all criminal brains in the 1800s, and the only one specifically mentioned in American medical journals for years. His brain received a full course of phrenological, psychological, and neurological assessments, a complete, first-of-its-kind profile of a genius and a criminal. Dr. Wilder even carried Edward's thick skull to a conference in New York. Later that year, Edward Ruloff's brain was scanned, at least the 1800s version of scanning. His was the very first criminal brain in America to be officially analyzed, studied, and publicly presented. That's what modern brain scans do today. Just a few years ago, the Wellcome Center in London declared Edward's brain the most notorious brain in U.S. history. And it's still being referenced by medical journals today, an exceptional example of genius poisoned by malevolence. If Dr. Burt Wilder had been a modern-day neurologist, he might have spotted those same abnormalities within an image of Edward Ruloff's brain. 
and those results might have been a mitigating factor in his death sentence. But even today, scientists have so much more to discover about our brains. And David Price says that we still wonder why a man with so much potential decided to be a killer. I mean, our depth of ignorance about how the brain works is is staggering. Journalist David Wren says that Edward Ruloff's story is a cautionary tale, and we still have things to learn from him. I think that is one of those things where there's more to be revealed. I can't imagine that we've discovered all the lessons that we could learn from Ruloff, especially when it comes to mental health and uh, personality disorders. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we should invest in mental health in, the, in our country. Rick Scott and I have returned to the cemetery where so many of his family members are buried. John, Hannah, William, Ephraim. Of course, Harriet's name is listed there too, even though they never did find her body or Priscilla's. Still, it's a reminder of how much the Scuts valued one another. Just going to that gravesite and seeing how much it meant, they all meant to each other that, that all the names around that big headstone, all the children, and you know, others buried right on the family plot there. But there was still one gravestone missing, the one meant for William's wife and child, Amelia and Emil. Craig thinks he might know where it is. We walk down to an underground stone vault inside the hill of the cemetery. There's a steel door with a broken lock. It feels like a creepy catacomb from an Edgar Allan Poe novel. There are broken headstones frozen to the ground. That's it. What does it say? Wife of William Scott. Died June 5th, 1845. That's it right there. So that's the gravestone. That's the top part of it, and I'm sure on the bottom part it said something about the child. That's it? Yeah. It's Ten days old. Yeah. I can't believe you found it. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, to me, it's sad because, you know, now there's, where are they? There's no marker. Yeah. When you read about Edward's victims, Amelia and Emil are only briefly mentioned, and they've been lost in this cemetery for more than a century. It's such a sad ending. Edward Ruloff's body had a similar fate. He was buried in an unmarked grave, but without his head, of course. Craig Scott believes that his ending was fitting. This guy thought he was so great, and look where he ended up. I mean, why wouldn't you feel that way? Yeah, his brain ended up floating in a (laughs) container at Cornell. (laughs) And he was a failure. And he was. Everything he thought he knew has been proved, really, to be bogus. Hamilton Freeman was forever haunted by his time with Edward Ruloff. He had been the closest person to Edward, perhaps the one who knew him the best. I see him in my dreams, wrote Ham. There was a magnetism about the man that irresistibly drew me to him. But he was duped, taken in by a charming psychopath. And even after the genius killer dismissed him for not helping him, Hamilton was conflicted. In him there was no repentance, Ham wrote. He petitioned to be saved for the benefit of science. Like Ponce de Leon, 
he chased a fleeting phantom to the grave. Edward was fond of quoting poets. Right before his execution, he quoted James Russell Lowell. Edward said, right forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. That means that he could die knowing that he was an honorable man. Edward's confidence bolstered him on the scaffold until his last breath. As Hamilton Freeman remembered the killer's final hours, he thought about what made Edward a murderer. Ham wrote, If not insane, he was the incarnation of all that is wicked. But Michael Weiss believes that Edward was just a man with a misguided theory. And here's something that was surprising to me. He thinks that Edward would have never succeeded at a university because his fixation with the question of meaning led him nowhere. He was obsessed with the question of meaning, and that was part of his character. I don't think uh, any kind of formal training would have knocked that out of him. Edward Ruloff represented an inherent contradiction in our country. How could a man translate the original language of the Bible but not be swayed by its tenets? Why would God intertwine both evil and genius inside the mind of one man? It was Edward Ruloff's brain that was the impetus so long ago to explore the criminal mind. And even today, his story draws us into a fascinating, chilling world that we'll likely never fully understand. His case was the first to make neuroscientists look for biological reasons for why someone kills. The mark of Satan was no longer a good enough excuse. And in a way, Edward Ruloff helped create the brain defense. For the Scuts, the terrible story of Edward Ruloff now serves mostly as a grim reminder of why they're so proud of their family. They never gave up. That says a lot about their parents, how their parents, they had been brought up with that kind of family loyalty and commitments, you know. Just the strength and the perseverance of your family is what I take away from it. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. I mean... They kept their values, they were persistent, and, you know, they had losses, but in the end, they got him. I hope you've enjoyed Season 1 of Tenfold More Wicked. Season 2 starts on January 25th. It's about a pair of serial killers in 19th century Scotland. If you love historical true crime, be sure to order my book, American Sherlock, It's about a real-life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>